Greetings, and welcome to another episode of The Camera Report, brought to you by WaterfootFilms.com. I'm your host, Sean Malone, and this month we are privileged to speak to Mr. Russell Boyd, Oscar winner and cinematographer extraordinaire. Mr. Boyd won the Oscar for Cinematography in 2003 for his work on Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, but not before a distinguished and notable career shooting dozens of films, including Picnic at Hanging Rock, Gallipoli, Tender Mercies, Crocodile Dundee, White Men Can't Jump, Forever Young, Operation Dumbo Drop, Tin Cup, Liar Liar, and American Outlaws, just to name a few. Russell also has the distinction of having shot six of acclaimed director Peter Weir's films, including Master and Commander. Weir's latest film, The Way Back, was also shot by Russell. He joins us today from his home in Sydney, Australia. Thank you, sir, for doing the show. That's a pleasure to be here. I'll start off with sort of an obvious question. How did you, or I guess I should say a, a fundamental question, how did you know that you wanted to be a cinematographer? Well, that's a good question, actually, because uh, when I was, I think I was 16 at the time, I wanted to become a press photographer, a news photographer, but the only job I could find was one. Um, I grew up in a fairly small country town, so there was a job opening in Melbourne, which is the capital of Victoria, one of our southern states, and the opening was a job at a company that made documentaries, television commercials, and even theatrical news. So I started that job as uh, basically a trainee, um, a trainee projectionist. I was helping paint sets because they built a few small sets in the studio. So just a general apprentice, I guess. Uh, but then I started to get really interested in, because they were making film commercials, I started getting interested in the film cameras and, and the whole process of filmmaking. So it started off almost by accident, really. Did you do uh, photography before that? Were you an amateur photographer as a kid? Not so much a kid, but certainly from teenage years, through my teenage years, I bought my first one or two cameras, still cameras, and it became a fairly consuming hobby when I was young. That's why I wanted to get interested into um, the press side of things. But as it happened, I think the best thing happened, but I found that job at uh, the little film company. But it was definitely a, a childhood hobby for sure. And I imagine you fell in love with cinematography after that. Yeah, I guess that took a while. I mean, when I first did join that company, I had just turned 17, actually. And I think, you know, I was still young and raw in those days. So it takes a little while to develop a passion for it. Although I remember, you know, often going to the movies and thinking, oh, boy, I'd love to be able to do that. And how, how did they manage to block off streets, you know, whole streets? And, and uh, where, you know, where do they get the power to do that? Right, <laughs> the power. <laughs> so I guess I just drifted into developing a love for filmmaking. And I think one of the questions you're probably going to be asking me is those early films that I made. Yeah, I read that your first narrative films were shot on the weekends with a borrowed camera. Can you tell us a little bit about those, what kind of films they were? The early films I shot, which were, I guess you would call weekend films or student films, were basically directed by a friend of mine uh, by the name of Michael Thornhill. And he was part of a, at the time in Sydney, there was a, a big mob of ex-university students or university students and they were called the Push and they used to drink in pubs and have a good old time and basically they're a whole lot of bohemians really. <laughs> so the films that Mike wanted to make were films, there were only two or three of them actually, but they were close to, the, I guess you could call, the bohemian narrative. Um, and because I worked at another company at that stage, I'd already moved to Sydney by that stage. 
And we, I used to borrow on the weekend, we used to borrow a 16mm Aeroflex camera and we'd go out and, and some other lighting equipment and we'd go out and make these films in our spare time on the weekends. Well, your movie credits are so extremely varied, and I found it hard as an interviewer to kind of know where to start. You know, I could ask you about your comedies or your Crocodile Dundee or working with Ron Shelton or Jim Carrey or Peter Weir. I, I was curious, have you been intentional about the, the variety and the diversity in your body of work? The variety actually comes from reading, you know, 30 or 40 scripts that I've taken on over the years. It's not something that I don't set out to uh, shoot only dramatic films or only comedies or only period films. I have my favourites. I think period films are probably my favourites. But I think cinematographers do get offered a big variety over the number of years. So fortunately, producers don't stereotype us and put us in a pigeonhole as only being able to turn our hands at one particular type of film. Well, you've shot so many period films, films like Master and Commander or The Way Back or Gallipoli. Do you ever feel like, while doing those types of films, do you ever feel like a cinematographer from, from like a bygone era, like shooting these sort of David Lean-esque things in scale? Firstly, Gallipoli was very much a historical film. It was a film about, virtually about Australia's coming of age um, because the First World War proved to be almost an adventure for a lot of the uh, soldiers that went over there, but of course they were being shot at with live bullets, live rounds. So I really enjoyed Gallipoli because it had a great sense of Australia and where we came from, how we evolved into, you know, what we are now, basically. So that was one of the great, to be honest, it's one of the favourite films, my favourite films that I've actually worked on. And I still, it still brings a tear to my eye when I see those last few scenes whenever I see it nowadays. So, but also a lot of period films I have worked on in Australia, particularly, have been about Australia's history. So, and I'm quite a fan of that. So, but things like um, Master and Commander, well, it it was a period film, true. Um, A period I enjoyed working in as a cinematographer. So, in the movie, of course. So, I don't particularly go for historical films or period films only, but I do enjoy them. You've also shot quite a few comedies and quite a few very notable ones, such as Liar Liar, White Men Can't Jump, Dr. Doolittle. And I wondered what's different about shooting comedies and does it depend on the director? Well, comedies uh, invariably are usually lit a little bit brighter. In other words, more detail in shadow areas. It's not necessary that comedies have to have a brighter look but and comedies can be quite dark as well. But I think most of the ones I have shot have been pretty much flat-out comedy. So you tend to, or I tend to use just a little bit more light from the front just to fill out the shadows a bit more. But, you know, comedians uh, are funny breed of people. Some of the most serious people I've ever worked with are comedians because they take, they do take their job very seriously. So, And a lot of the nuances, if you light, really, light them really dramatically, a lot of the nuances of their facial expressions can be lost. So I tend to... Keep, just keep the whole thing a little bit brighter. And I think I've done that in most of the comedies I've shot. Well, you've said before that if you do have a style, it's in making lighting look as natural as possible. I was wondering, why do you feel so strongly about this? One of the things I hate when I see movies is to become aware of how they've been lit. Um, I hate seeing phony shadows. I try and light as softly and 
as expressive as I can without introducing uh, to the audience maybe a few hints as to how I've gone about it. So um, I tend to like to light as naturally as possible with almost with no light sources or with no obvious light sources uh, other than maybe windows or a few practical lamps. And I use quite a lot of soft light. So I just try and make it look um, as cosmetic and pleasing as possible without introducing a lot of, let me say, phony hints of what I've done. Like, in other words, keeping the illusion and never breaking that. Well, keeping the illusion of letting the story tell itself, if you know what I mean, uh, and, and not letting the lighting interfere with the storytelling process, and just to give the actors a, a comfortable, natural place to work. Your work as a DP, speaking of natural lighting, finds you outside quite a bit. Do you find yourself feeling most at home in an outdoor setting as a cinematographer? Not really. In fact, Lighting for exteriors can be some of the most difficult uh, challenges you face, actually, which may sound strange because particularly in Australia and parts of the US as well, the sunlight can be quite harsh. So I love working on a set as well, an interior set. I love lighting a set. But lighting, working outside, I still follow the same principle that I don't like to see any phony shadows from the actors, you know, from no shadows from the actors or two shadows, I hate all that stuff, so I tend to light with generally with a great big bounce light outside and often it's only with using the sunlight. If I can keep the scene backlit, which means the sun behind the subject and shooting towards that, it's, it can be a very flattering light for, and, and very forgiving light to put the actors in by using these great big bounce lights around them and um, it makes it comfortable for them to work again. You uh, won an Oscar for the, your work in Master Commander in 2003. That movie, like a lot of your films, has some really beautiful um, production design as well. And I, I want to ask you this question about the importance of production design, because it seems to me the films that are nominated for Best Cinematography usually are nominated for art direction and costume as well. So the corollary would seem to me to be they make you look good and vice versa. Firstly, I, I, it's a good question because I spend a lot of time with the production designer and I always hang out in the art department in, pre, in prep, in pre-production, and they've normally got loads and loads of, of books for reference, um, illustrative and photographic books, and, you know, I like to be around while the set's being designed, while the drawing's being made, so I can actually talk about maybe um, how we can light the scene, whether they can build in some some places to hide some lights for me on a set. I can talk a little bit more later on about Master Commander as well, but on, on that film I did spend a lot of time in the art department and I, I find I get do get a lot from them and the production designer nearly always has some great and strong ideas about how the film should look as well, so I can actually take a key from that as well uh, or take a cue from that because invariably the production designers start long before I do, so they've had a you know, the whole thing has evolved in their head. So I can just come in and, and steal some ideas from them or certainly discuss ideas about how we feel the whole thing should look. And that, of course, includes a director as well. But, yeah, the production designer is an extremely important per- person to me, as is the whole art department. Is that a moment when you get, you know, you start a project and you see every, all the work they've done so far? I'd imagine that's very exciting for you, knowing what you're going to be able to photograph. I take my cue from the very first time I ever read the script. Um, 
I find that the first impressions are always the lasting or should be the lasting ones for me in terms of I can, when I first read the script for the very first time, I can often visualise it as to the way it should look and I can actually, I guess I can sort of pick angles in my head how a scene should play. And so really once once I actually come onto the movie, which is usually about three months or sometimes four months on a big movie in pre-production, I've usually got a pretty good idea how I think it should look. But then those ideas can either be confirmed when I start talking to the art department. And But I've, I've often found the first impression is the better way to go. As we were just talking about Master and Commander, and I read recently you said that it was one of the most difficult shoots you've ever undertaken. Can you talk about why that was and, and some of the challenges you faced that were unique to that shoot? Well, I think I might have made, <laughs> made that statement before we made The Way Back because I think I'm thoroughly convinced that was the most difficult film ever worked Okay, on so in retrospect now you have that experience too. Yeah, but um, looking back to Master Commander, it was extremely difficult. Um, <sighs> firstly, no films are easy. I mean, there's, I've never made an easy film in my life and I don't expect I ever will. And I'd, I'm sure other cinematographers would agree. You know, there's no such thing as an easy movie to shoot. But Master Commander, we had a lot of unusual circumstances like when we were shooting on a set, which was the upper deck out on, in the tank in Mexico, and that tank was built by James Cameron for Titanic. You know, they, we, we would walk out to the set in the morning and they'd pull all of their walkways away, so otherwise they'd be in shot. So we couldn't leave the ship until, until they called lunch, lunch break, and then we'd go back after lunch and we couldn't leave it again until we wrapped. So going to the, going to the toilet was a problem for one thing. But also it was an incredibly difficult thing was we all, on nearly every shot, we had sort of 100 extras on the ship. And so moving around to either adjust the lighting or adjusting cameras or getting the grips to do whatever or McGaffer to do whatever was incredibly dif- difficult because we just had to virtually push our way through hundreds of people or 100 people. It sounds like the, the normal difficulty of shooting on water was there with, the, of course, the exception of it was um, lessened a little bit by the fact that you were shooting at Fox Baja Studios. Yes, we actually didn't shoot very much at all at sea. I think we only went to sea for about a week or so, maybe 10 days, because that has its own set of difficulties, really, because you need support vessels around you and and keeping them out of shot was difficult. And, you know, we'd probably sail off the coast for two or three hours to start shooting so there was no land visible for 360 degrees. Then we had to shoot for a whole day, then we'd have three hours to come home at night. So, you know, our our days would start at five in the morning and finish at nine o'clock at night. So, What kind of shots, though? from the finished film were actually shot at, at sea? I'll tell you one specific one you probably remember. Firstly, the, the shots on the, the proper sailing ship were done mostly by second unit. So, and they were just sailing shots of it, wide shots. The rest of it was nearly all shot on the sets that we built. But the, one of the scenes we did shoot at sea was the scene where the doctor and the, and the captain climbed the mast, and people have often said, now that had to be a visual effect, but it wasn't. It would, that both the actors climbed the mast all the way to the top, and, in fact, there was a bit of a competition as to who would get there first, and I think Russell Crowe did get there first, I think. <laughs> but, and then it cuts the helicopter shot, which was done by a second unit, where the two guys were up on the mast, and it's proof. 
but people said, oh, it had to be in green screen and all this. But that was that's one of the scenes that we did shoot at sea. I was wondering about that because I watched the film earlier today, and um, that's I was like, I bet that's one of the shots they shot at sea. So I, <laughs> my suspicions are confirmed. I'm glad you thought that and didn't think it was a visual effect. Master and Commander, to me, it looks and feels so authentic, and I'd say even more authentic than any other naval picture before it. And this kind of made me wonder if you and Mr. Weir were in a way reacting against your naval cinematic forebears. If you know films like Mutiny on the Bounty or the various iterations of Moby Dick, were you were you conscious of those films and trying to do something different? Well, one of the first things that Peter said to me was that this film is not Master Commander, of course, is not going to look like a Hollywood film. He he didn't want it to look like um, a swashbuckling Errol Flynn movie, and I'm not decrying those movies, but he wanted it to be uh, essentially a high drama. So he, he went to great lengths to make sure that um, the set that was built in on the tank was absolutely authentic, um, including we used the, this type of material that was used in the, in the sails. Made, made it quite a huge expense, actually. He wouldn't allow any nylon rope to be used on camera. So if there was any nylon used in the rigging, it was always sheathed in um, hemp. So Peter is always very determined, and I love him for it too, actually, to, to keep things absolutely authentic. So I think that's why Master Commander did look unlike, you know, a Hollywood tall ship rollicking, you know, seafaring movie. It was shot essentially for the drama. This question's for me because when I saw Master and Commander, it just was a total experience for me, and um, I felt completely immersed in that world. So it made me wonder: How did you feel when you saw the finished film for the first time? You know, seeing all the elements—music, sound, visual effects—gelled together perfectly. Did the result surprise you at all? The results didn't surprise me because I'll just tell you firstly what happens usually. When we finish principal photography, which is the main unit photography, I come home and I don't usually see the film until, say, six months later. Probably in Master Commander's case it was maybe a year later when I went back to Los Angeles from home here in Sydney, went back to Los Angeles to what we call time the picture. In other words, get all the colour balance right, get all the exposure, you know, in a printable form and get the whole thing to gel together. And this is done at the laboratory, and nowadays it's done at a visual effects house as well. So when I, f- I went back a year later, I pretty much expected how the film would be, but I was very pleasantly surprised to um, find that, you know, the visual effects were really working and uh, it was such a, you know, uh, well-crafted movie, particularly from Peter Weir's work on it. I mean, he's a wonderful director. So I was very pleasantly surprised at, at how it had actually worked out. Speaking of Mr. Weir, that's a perfect segue. Your latest film was also directed by Peter Weir, The Way Back. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Mr. Weir and how it's grown and evolved over the last three and a half decades? Well, Peter and I first worked together on Picnic and Hanging Rock, um, a film he made or we made in uh, 1974 or 75, I think it was. It's a long time ago. And in the years since, I've shot six films with Peter, but there was a gap of about 20 years between The Year of Living Dangerously and between Master Commander. So there was that gap where I didn't work with Peter. He made he threw, John Seal shot three films for him, then he made a few others in the US as well. But eventually um, 
asked me to do Master Commander, which I was thrilled to bits about because I, I love working with him and it was a great story. So the relationship resumed again after 20 years. And Peter, when we were first setting up to shoot Master and Commander, Pete hired a, um, a tour ship on Sydney Harbour because we went out to decide which format to shoot, whether we shoot anamorphic, widescreen or whatever. Um, at the end of the day, in fact, at the beginning of the day, we'd already decided we were going to shoot anamorphic, which is the old CinemaScope or 235 to 1 ratio. But um, at the end of the day, Peter said, you know, it's as though time, no time has been lost between us. Um, he said, we, there's a shorthand, which means we don't, you know, don't have to communicate everything we feel because it's just sort of there naturally. So I was very pleased he said that. And it, it does seem to work that way. The few films, I've, well, the two films I've done since, we must have found it on the way back, uh, with him have, there's always been a, like a, a communication that doesn't have to be um, exercised from us. So the relationship's a good one. Um, I mean, we don't see each other socially much between movies, but it's pretty intensive when we're on a movie because Peter likes his director of photography, in fact, a lot of his key department people, to have a long pre-production. So we talk a lot about the different scenes and the way he wants to do them. Well, you just keep doing my work for me, Russell. My next question has to do a little bit with pre-production. On the way back, you're basically facing a story that, spans thousands of miles and tons of locations. I was wondering, what is what are some of the visual references that you and Mr. Weir really look to when forming how you would photograph each landscape? Peter showed me a number of documentaries, one about Tibet, one about Mongolia, one about Siberia, and they weren't necessarily a way to, to find to shoot the movie, but it was just to give me some background as to, you know, what, what those locations were going to be all about. Also, Peter is very, very particular about his choice of locations. So, and I went on a lot of those location scouts and particular in what way? About how um, authentic they look to really to like Mongolia or Tibet or or Siberia. He made sure that when, wherever we shot those uh, particular scenes, the locations would actually almost pass for being right there where they were, even though we shot in Morocco and India and, and uh, Bulgaria. But he was very, very fussy about choosing the right location. So, and that always gives me a clue as to how to photo, how to use the light of a given location um, and how to use the terrain, how to, let's say, uh, work on the landscapes that we might be shooting. We also did look at a lot of, might I say, um, coffee table books or illustrated books about the various locations we were trying to um, emulate. And, you know, I poured over those at great length. And also when I was in Bulgaria on my prep, I would spend time in the art department looking at those books as well. And Peter had a huge library of stuff that um, I could look at at any stage. So I guess even though I said before, you know, my first impression when I read the script is the one lasts. Um, I was given a lot of clues along the way with visual reference. Well, you shot on Kodak uh, film for the way back on Vision 3, 5219 stock. And I'm going to go ahead and ask the cliche question you probably get asked a lot, but I think it's a relevant one. What are your thoughts on digital cinema cameras like the Alexa or like Canon's latest announcement? Firstly, I've just finished a two-week project with with an Alexa, uh, and I've used it before 
on quite a few occasions for television commercials, and I love, it. I absolutely love it. I think it's um, to me, it's the first digital movie camera. It's designed by Araflex, so they know what they're doing, and it's very, very user friendly to cinematographers. It's got all the bells and whistles, ultra high quality, and a joy to work with. To be honest, I've always been a film person, but gee whiz, I tell you what, I think um, the Alexa's going to knock a fair few productions out of Kodak's, out of the film, out of film's hands with Kodak or whoever. But is that partly because of the latitude offered by the Alexa? Um, that's certainly got a lot to do with it. I mean, it has as much latitude as film. They might even claim it's got more, but I, I believe it's about the same. It's certainly about the same as that 5293 stock that I used on Master Commander. And, oh, sorry, on um, uh, The Way Back, which I love. I mean, I love that film stock. But, gee whiz, if somebody said to me, look, we want you to do this movie, but you've got to shoot on an Alexa, I would say, well, why not? As opposed to, you know, I wouldn't want to shoot a movie on a Canon still camera on a digital SLR because it doesn't have quite the latitude or the range that, or nowhere near the range that um, the Alexa has. And the thing I love about high def is that your monitor sh- shows you exactly what you're getting. So with film, there's always a bit of a worry until you see your work the next day as to whether you've gone a bit too far or haven't gone far enough or whether you've, you know, whether you've made the thing gel with what, what you did the day before or the day before that. So, but with the, a good high-definition monitor on your film set, gee, you can actually save some time by, gee, I don't think I have to light that corner of the set because there's plenty of information there. Whereas with film, you would tend to light it just in case. So I'm, I love film, but now I'm getting to be a big fan of cameras like the Alexa, or particularly the Alexa. Sounds like an ad for Alexa, <laughs> so it shouldn't. And now our listeners can click on this link and buy an Alexa. No. <laughs> no. Um... But guess what? There'll probably be a new Alexa out in a year or two, so I wouldn't be rushing out buying a high-def camera anyway. Well, a lot of people do. A lot of cinematographers have bought them. A lot of them bought red cameras and are finding them even difficult to hire out anymore. So technology's going ahead in leaps and bounds, and it's pretty exciting to be part of that too, actually, to be honest. One of the great things I love that nowadays is being able to do what we call a DI, which is a digital intermediate. It means the entire film becomes a file, which it's digitised, it's scanned and digitised, so each scene becomes a digital file. And you can do so much with that digital file now doing the digital intermediate. Uh, You can manipulate it so much in ways that you just couldn't do 10 years ago. And it's really exciting as to how you can correct minor problems. You can create all sorts of looks doing the digital intermediate. And then after we've finished all the adjustments, those digital files are turned back into a film negative from which they make the prints. And nowadays there's even less printing going on because they'll, um, send the digital files of a whole movie to a cinema. What was your first experience with the digital intermediate? Master and Commander. I think about 15% of Master and Commander was actually digital. The rest of it came from the negative, and most of the digital work on that was from the visual effects. A film I did after that called Ghost Rider, which we shot in Melbourne, was entirely, uh, entirely a DI. So the whole film was scanned and became a digital file, and we worked on those digital files. What's the strangest thing that's happened to you in your career? The strangest thing was, and once again, 
<laughs> it deals with Peter Weir. I I was going to Los Angeles to do a digital DI of a film called American Outlaws, and as I checked in at the Qantas departure desk in Sydney, who should be at the aisle next to me but Peter Weir. So as it turned out, we were sitting, we are up in first class. We used to travel first class in those days, or I used to. <laughs> I think Peter still does. But um, as it happened, we were both right up at the front of the aircraft in seats with only the aisle between us. So he told me all about this film he wanted to make called Master and Commander. He told me the whole thing, and I thought, oh, wow, wouldn't I love to shoot that? But anyway, I got off the aircraft thinking, gee, that would be great, but never mind. So I think the strangest thing in answer to your question is bumping into Peter that day at the airport getting on the same flight. He was going over to see Fox about, you know, setting up the production and all that stuff. And so, But probably one of the best things that's happened to me, I was sitting in my hotel room that night thinking about what he'd been telling me, and he called me up and said, I want, you to, I want to drop the script around to you tomorrow. Oh, wow. So he did. <laughs> so um, I was totally excited, of course, because I hadn't worked with him for 20 years, as I said, and it was a story that was right up my alley. And Peter said, I didn't just offer to <laughs> offer to you because I saw you on the plane. He said, I was thinking about because I know you like sailing and blah, blah, blah. So that was a great moment. What is the most gratifying moment in your career so far? Probably either that moment <laughs> when Peter called or I think the, the Academy Award was probably the, one of the most gratifying, unexpected experiences. Um, of course, once I was nominated, I thought, well, I had a, one chance in five or four, in five of winning it. But um, So it came my way and that was, um, I guess, a highlight for sure. Can you describe how you felt that night when you, when you heard your name called? Funny thing is, a week or so before that, I'd also been nominated uh, for an ACS award, which I didn't win. And just before the winner was announced, I went into an absolute cold sweat, thinking, oh, my, you know, if I win this, I've got to get up and make a speech. And once that experience was behind me, it sort of, as I said, it was such a surreal evening at the Academy Awards. And when I heard my name read out, I thought, okay, I better get up. And I'd sort of, we all have to have a rough idea of what we're going to say. So I had, you know, some notes and, and just in case. And um, up I got and accepted the order. It was just, oh, <laughs> it was a pretty amazing experience. But I, I wasn't terrified at all. I can't understand why because I'm not a big public speaker and with an audience of however, however many millions are watching that show, didn't bother me at all. Well, you're, you're used to being in front of your crew at least. <laughs> yeah, but not accepting the Academy sure. Award. <laughs> what would you say is the best advice you can offer young or new cinematographers? I have been asked that question before, and I often tell a joke as an answer. And the joke is about a visitor, a tourist in New York, asking a hard-bitten New Yorker, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And a New Yorker said, practice, practice, practice. <laughs> and I think... If you get a chance as a cinematographer to practice your craft every day of your life, if you can, because you've got to get that whole technical thing behind you and be able to concentrate on what the story is all about and what the expectations of the script are. So I'd say practice, practice, practice whenever you can get your hands on a camera. Was there ever a moment in your career when you felt like you'd arrived, like, okay, I've got the technical stuff and now I can focus on being... Yeah, I know there's probably not a single moment, but you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, I've got this technical thing. Now I can really focus on story and all these other things. 
Look, I know exactly what you're saying. And it didn't come as a blinding flash of lightning, but after I had shot about, it took about four or five movies, I think, to really feel comfortable, maybe even more, um, to really feel comfortable with, you know, my experience in knowing how to handle most situations. That's when I realised that I could sort of get on with, as you say, what the movie's all about and probably be of more help to the director even at that point and from that point onwards. Is that after Picnic a Hanging Rock? No, that was only my third movie. It would have been probably quite a few movies after that, really. I mean, to be honest, you know, when you start out in a movie, well, I did anyway, I was scared my first few movies um, that I'd be making a mistake or because mistakes are expensive. In reshoots are frowned on, of course. So, you know, one has to be as accurate as possible with your work and you have to keep an eye on the clock because the time is the is the enemy of all filmmakers. So um, you have to learn in a hurry and if if you do make any mistakes, hopefully they're not big ones so you can cover them up later on or, or deal with them later on. But making a big mistake is very much frowned on. Russell, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and I know our listeners feel the same way. Pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Our thanks again to Russell Boyd for being interviewed today. And thanks to you for downloading this episode of The Camera Report, produced by Brad Malone and Sean Malone. For more episodes of The Camera Report, please visit waterfootfilms.com and click on the podcast link. Subscribing is easy and free. Also, search for Waterfoot Films on Facebook and then like us to see updates. And we want to hear from you. You can email feedback to podcast at waterfootfilms.com. I'm Sean Malone. Thanks for listening.